Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. This is the Character and Smallman Podcast on 101 ESPN. Good morning, everyone. I'm, uh, I just lost my breath there right in the okay. first word of the show. <laughs> Breathtaking day here in St. Louis. You know, Randy, we can't lose you that that, that early, right? If your voice is going to give out, let it be around yeah. 945 or something. Yeah. Welcome to uh, Carriker and Swalman on 101 ESPN. <laughs> it's 7 o'clock. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers and officially licensed Rolex jeweler. That is the voice of Michelle Smallman. I'm Randy Carriker. Quite a show coming up. A couple of guys who should be Baseball Hall of Famers will join us. Billy Wagner at the bottom of this hour and then Mark McGuire at 845. Of course, the documentary Long Gone Summer is coming out on Sunday and we're going to talk to Big Mac about that and some other things. Plus, another Hall of Famer, Bernie Federko, in the 8 o'clock hour as he joins us in our Blues booth. So, uh, we've got Hall of Famers and should be Hall of Famers galore. The best of the best for you on Carriker and Smallman today. Looking forward to it. And hopefully, we'll be able to have some other great baseball players that we'll watch in in 2020, last night was the MLB draft, and before the draft, Rob Manfred was interviewed by ESPN's Carl Ravitch and told us that, yeah, we're going to have baseball. I'll be disappointed that we're unable to reach an agreement that allows us to play more games. Um, but you know what? I think at the end of the day, the most important thing, and I'm not buying into your number of 48, the most important thing is that we play Major League Baseball in 2020, and I can tell you unequivocally, we are going to play Major League baseball this year yay yeah well he can implement the schedule he says he's not buying 48 so maybe it'll be 50 games but he can say we're playing it might not make everybody happy i.e the players but at least we know that at some point probably in august we're going to see baseball which is a positive i i shouldn't be so morose about it i just hope what we I hope we don't see a situation where the players are forced to do it and it becomes what we talked about with Danny Mack during the crossover a few days ago where players get knee injuries Mm -hmm. and players don't want to play because of safety things. And so we see some sort of disjointed version of baseball. I hope that if and when it returns, it is exactly what we hope it's going to be. Rob Manfred claims to be a listener. He claims to be a collaborator. He, to use your great term, should read the room and understand that Mm -hmm. if he doesn't negotiate a deal, if he implements his own schedule for 2020, the players are never going to come back to him. He'll he'll lose the players as the commissioner of baseball forever if he forces them to play under his and the owner's terms. Yeah, strong strong arming them is not the play. And as we've talked about at length, with the CBA coming up, you don't want to muddy the waters further because you just don't want this to be so messy and continue on for another year. So hopefully we'll get something done. And he does say that he wants to get that deal negotiated. That's at the forefront of Rob Manfred's mind. I'm a big believer um, in the process. Um, I would prefer to negotiate a new agreement with with the MLBPA that gets us more games and resolves um, the issues that have separated us amicably. Uh, But at the end of the day, we negotiated for the right in March to start the season on a number of games um, that that we select in these particular circumstances. And if we have to, we'll exercise that right. 
And obviously, they don't want to pay, as we all know, Mm -hmm. the full freight. They don't want to pay the 100% per game pro rata that the players want. And the players don't want anything less than 100% of their per game contract. Just to hear him say we negotiated it in March, to say that yesterday on June 10th, and to think about how much time has been wasted is so annoying. (laughs) You're so right about that, because when did we know just as logical observers, that they were not going to play with fans in 2020. Probably when they negotiated that deal, Prob- right? I was going to say late March. Once once everything shut down, I think there was a pretty swift conversation, at least amongst sports circles, saying, hey, if the, if the if we're not allowed to leave our houses, if we're in quarantine, mm-hmm. there's no way that we should be taking the risk to have fans in the stands this season. I think I was going to say late March, early April. It was definitive. And t- hindsight 2020, obviously. But at that point, if you're baseball, you go back to the players and say, OK, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And we do have it. Our notes say that we're going to discuss this if we aren't going to have fans. Well, we aren't going to have fans. So let's start talking again. And you're exactly right. It should have been early April at the very latest. Opening day. What would have been opening day mm-hmm. at the very latest. They went back to the players and said, look, we are not going to have fans this year. I remember we had opening day here. And yeah. I think we all kind of expected a uh, um, some sort of announcement on when everything was going to resume kind of around that same time. And to think that we're sitting here in early June, we're almost at mid-June, and there still hasn't been a confirmation of when baseball is coming back is it's mind-blowing when you think about it. And he claims that his group of 30 owners has an understanding of what America is dealing with right now. The March 26th agreement was premised on the belief, mutual belief, um, that we were going to be in a position where we would be playing baseball games in full stadiums. And I think um, that we find ourselves in a situation where we're going to be playing largely without fans, if not exclusively without fans. And that altered the economic landscape and really required another negotiation. And that's why they're asking the players to take less. And the players, they aren't acquiescing to the idea, which is in the MLB owner lawyer's notes, that they would Mm -hmm. discuss further if indeed there weren't fans in the stands. The smoking gun. Yep. So we'll see where that goes. There are other things happening. MLS is coming back. They're going to have a tournament. They unveiled plans for returning to play on March or on July 8th. It's called the MLS's Back Tournament. And all 26 teams will participate in the competition, which will be held in Orlando. So they're coming back without fans. And MLS, as we talked with Taylor Twelman about last week, has a new five-year CBA. Players seem to be okay with this. Owners obviously are, and they're going to have games, and they're going to be on TV, mm-hmm. and they're going to have a chance to, once again, show America that they do have the desire to play games. I think it's great for MLS. I think it's great for the sport. I know a lot of people are going to be locked into that. And how about Orlando? Orlando is mm-hmm. just going to be the epicenter of professional yeah. sports here in America. It'll be a hotbed when the NBA <laughs> gets down there. I'm surprised, and obviously the NHL still hasn't named another site, but I, I'm surprised that Tampa isn't a possibility at least for the NHL it would mm-hmm. they've been a Super Bowl city they've got enough hotel rooms they've got ice rinks down there and the weather's good true but I think with Disney you are it's kind of your own community it's an they, Olympic village yeah really. I was gonna say you can control like, if you are the 
MLS or if you're the NBA, you can control the environment surrounding your players, which is going to not only benefit you, but benefit them. It's going to make them feel more safe and, you know, secure. NASCAR is back. They've run multiple races already, and they ran in Atlanta on Sunday. And Bubba Wallace, who drives the car that's sponsored by St. Louis-based Worldwide Technology, the only African-American NASCAR driver, wore a Black Lives Matter shirt at the race on Sunday. And then subsequent to the race said that he didn't think that NASCAR should allow the Confederate flag to be flown at races on the site or at NASCAR events. Yesterday, word came from NASCAR, quote, on Twitter, the presence of the Confederate flag at NASCAR events runs contrary to our commitment to providing a welcoming and inclusive environment for all fans, our competitors, and our industry. Bringing people together around a love for racing in the community that it creates is what makes our fans and sports special. The display of the Confederate flag will be prohibited from all NASCAR events and properties. So no more Confederate flag at NASCAR events. I think it's a wonderful step. I think it's long overdue, but that doesn't make it any less shocking because NASCAR has been talking about this for a long time. I was listening to Golik and Wingo this morning on my drive-in, and they were talking about the fact that this was being discussed by Dale Earnhardt Jr. five years ago, and nothing Mm -hmm. had been done. Five years ago, after um, the church shooting, and they were talking about, hey, maybe we should denounce this, maybe NASCAR could ban it, and five years later, they still hadn't done it as of yesterday. And that will not, when you think about the core of NASCAR's fan base. It is from the Southeast primarily. That's where NASCAR is popular. Yeah. And a lot of those people in reacting to the statement on NASCAR yesterday, on NASCAR's Twitter page, they were not happy about the fact that they aren't going to be able to fly that flag anymore. Another racial event happened, and a shocking one, with the Boston Red Sox turning out uh, statement on social media, and this is what it said about Tory Hunter claiming that he had been uh, attacked racially at Fenway Park. The Red Sox tweeted this. Tory Hunter's experience is real. If you doubt him because you've never heard it yourself, take it from us. It happens. Last year, there were seven reported incidents at Fenway Park where fans used racial slurs. Those are just the ones we know about. And it's not only players. It happens to the dedicated black employees who work for us on game days. Their uniforms may be different, but their voices and experiences are just as committed to using our platform to amplify the many voices who are calling out injustice. There are well-established consequences for fans who use racial slurs and hate speech in our venue. And we know we have more work to do. This small group of fans does not represent who we are, but are rather a reflection of a larger systemic issue that as an organization we need to address. True change starts from within. And as we identify how we can do better, please know we are listening. We hear you and we believe you. And then they've got the Red Sox logo at the bottom of the page. Wow. Good for them for acknowledging it because isn't that part of what we're seeing in America right now is a lot of different organizations and or people acknowledging whether intentional or not that we are part of this system of racism and oppression in America. And step number one is identifying it. It's saying, hey, we acknowledge that this exists. We are aware of it. We are educating ourselves and we are going to make it better. And 
what this does, and I, I'm glad that the Red Sox did this, but we have heard about incidents at Fenway Park over the years. Mm-hmm. And while we are disgusted by them because racism is not a good thing, it doesn't appear that the Red Sox, aside from, okay, we'll, we'll ban this fan from the ballpark, but they haven't come out with a statement that says this is not right until now. Now, it's great that they have discovered that this is an important thing, and it's great that they're recognizing it and taking a stand, but it, it literally, for all of this stuff to happen in the last two weeks, it took the death of a black man being murdered on video for it to happen. And for us to be in quarantine and have mm-hmm. nothing to distract us. It, it took a global health pandemic and a murder on video for mm-hmm. all of this to all of this change to come about, which is so unfortunate. But like I said, it's a step in the right direction. Better late than never, right? Better and late a, than never. Hopefully a better world for our kids. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. And this is Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Next up, Bill DeWitt made the comment that... The baseball industry isn't as profitable as people think it is. How will that go over in the clubhouse? That's next on 101 ESPN. Michelle Smallman, Randy Character with you on 101 ESPN. And Michelle, we both have dogs. And yes. one thing about dogs is that they live in the moment. <laughs> and, like, my dog was really happy this morning when I left. And... She was wagging her tail and stuff. Kind of sad when I walked out the door. But I guarantee you that once I walked out the door, she was wagging her tail again and has no idea that I exist right now. They, they live in the moment. Dogs, it's very cool for them. Yes. Because when, when I come home, she'll say, oh, here's this cool guy. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm back, okay? Oh, Randy's home. Yeah. With baseball players, it's <laughs> very similar they they care about baseball. First and foremost, they do care about baseball. There is not a single baseball player, regardless of what you read, what they write on Twitter. There's not a single baseball player that cares more about their contract and money than playing the game. They've been playing the game since they were five years old, and that's what they care about most. And... They really don't care about what other people are making that aren't baseball players. So when baseball players come back into the Cardinal Clubhouse, when this thing is all said and done, Bill DeWitt made his comment yesterday that baseball is not a very profitable industry. There is not going to be any conversation about Bill DeWitt's comments. Zero, because players won't remember it. They're kind of like puppies when we walk out the door. Yeah, they'll be very excited to be back with each other and to be back in the clubhouse and to be back playing baseball. But I do think those conversations are probably happening now. I would think so, Privately on some text chains. I mean, if Jack Flaherty's tweeting about it publicly, I'm sure he's texting his teammates about it. Yeah, and Jack might do well just to back off the social media a little bit. To to have a tweet that said Bill DeWitt would rather spend his money on real estate than on talented players and have Jack Flaherty like a tweet that basically says Bill DeWitt won't pay for talented players. What's Jack Flaherty saying about his teammates? And what is he saying about himself, who has yeah. a contract coming up? Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't know that he's, if that is the best way for him to utilize that platform, that social media platform. But he's he's his own guy, and if he wants to do that, he's allowed to. Now, yesterday, John Mozeliak joined Rivs and BK here on 101 ESPN and was asked about DeWitt's comments. I hope people understand as I'm speaking, there's two things that, that you have to understand. is I, I can't speak for him. That's, you know. 
he has to do that on his own. And, and two, I hope people understand I do work for him. So it, <laughs> it, it does put you in a, a, a bit of a peculiar spot. But I, I do think what he was trying to convey is, is when you look at it from just a, a pure cash flow business, it's not, it's not necessarily a successful model. What it, what it is is obviously franchise values do go up, and there's, you know, there's no running away from that. Uh, you look at what teams were being bought and sold for 25 years ago to where they are today, clearly um, people find value in those investments or they wouldn't do it. So um, you, you can't run and hide from that. And to your point, the, the, the country... Is, is is really hurting right now and and to to be in the middle of of these types of arguments or debates it's it's not helpful and so I'm going to take the high road here and, and obviously <laughs> you, you guys can tell that but it's it's ho- I'm hopeful that these two parties meaning the player association and the MLB can find a way to to get back on the field and and put this behind us but you know there, there's no doubt that the more you talk about this the more in trouble you might get well said and i'm glad that mo took the high road and didn't want to and it doesn't make any sense for him to engage in any negotiations because negotiations almost by definition now with mlb and the players are a fight this has become nothing but a fight. And I really appreciate most comments there. I love how he prefaced everything by saying, hey, I work for him, mm-hmm. so please keep that in mind when you ask me these questions. Because, yeah, I mean, even if we were in an environment where something was happening at the station, we wouldn't, even if we disagreed with it, we're not going to come out publicly and say, hey, we, we disagree with what, with what is happening in our workplace. But I do think to most greater point, he's right. To talk about these things publicly, is it's not helping anyone. The country is in a really tough spot, and we're slowly coming out of it. But watching team sports and watching the athletes that we love back in competition is part of that healing process and to watch all of this play out Mo's exactly right it has not been helpful no and we've talked about our frustration as media members with the great work and the great contacts that people like jeff passan and ken rosenthal have and mo feels our pain well i think i'd answer that more in terms of of strategically right um for some reason the this this negotiation has both sides have chosen to use more of the media than than just the closed door, roll up our sleeves and try to find it to get a deal done. And um, clearly, I don't think that's been in everybody's best interest because that's why we're talking about it. That's why we're we're analyzing just the the strategy versus even the substance, which can be a bit bit frustrating. And and I can see why, from the public standpoint, people have questions. And if you think about maybe some of the other sports, for example, where they were able to resolve things quicker and quieter. I think people have appreciation for that. I will say, though, all four professional sports have way different economics, and and their CBAs are very different. But having said that, it, it, it does appear that, that we're not getting it right. One thing about, historically at least, Michelle, negotiations for sports leagues and CBAs, is when they are contentious, you can literally lock people in a room until they get a deal done, and then they they emerge with a deal. I think one of the problems that we have with the pandemic is that these negotiations are taking place over uh, over social media, over Zoom or whatever, mm-hmm. and you don't have that actual 
face-to-face. And I think even if you're having a Zoom meeting, you, you don't get what you get when you have people locked in a conference room together. And I think that's got to be part of what's hurting baseball here. Yeah, you have body language. You have you can uh, feel someone's energy when you're in the same room as mm-hmm. them. Yeah, I'm sure. Hey, I know that these Zoom happy hours that I'm doing are nowhere near the same as hanging out with my friends in real life. So I can't even imagine something as serious as um, a major, major business negotiation going down over Zoom. It can't be an easy thing to do. But to hear Mo say, it does appear that we're not getting it right. The fact that the pobo of the Cardinals is acknowledging, hey, I understand that the public is viewing us through this lens of what is wrong with them. The fact that he gets that gives me hope that hopefully other people involved in these negotiations and baseball do get it. And there's got to be an owner or two that are providing this information that every single time the owners have a new proposal, it's getting into the hands of Passan and or Rosenthal and or Evan Drellich. And that's a big part of the issue. And once again, if you're locked in a room, you can't go outside and say, okay, to Jeff Passan, here's what our next offer is going to be because you're locked in the room. Now, you can obviously text him, but... I think the leaks would be mitigated greatly if we didn't have the situation that we have right now. If you were in a room, you do the St. Petersburg and you put all the phones in the basket so you can't leak any of the info. That's a great idea. That's the thing to do. Get everybody down in St. Petersburg. Yeah. Just have Brady watch because he's living right. in that house. Right, exactly. And uh, yeah, Tony Clark and Rob Manfred, and uh, they can each bring a posse with them. Yeah. And just get them. I'm sure there's a room, a conference. Probably Jeter's dining room holds like 60 people. I'm sure. Get everybody at that table and have them hash it out. Put the phones in the basket, hash it out. You get a gift basket on the way out. Sounds great. A signed baseball from Jeter or a signed football, deflated, of course, from Brady. Mm. Which one do you think holds more value right now, Brady? I would go with the Brady. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. So yeah, you get a you get a deflated Brady football on the way out as as your prize for getting this done. And by the way, if you are, I mean, that's an interesting question. If it's Jeter's house, who has home field advantage? He's an owner and a former mm. player. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say right now, currently the owners, because he's so. in there on their team now. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because you might at least respect and trust that he was a former player, if you're a player. Yeah, but we thought that everything that he was as a player would translate to an owner, and we haven't really seen that happen. So I think the players look at him right now as an owner. I, I would think so. That's Michelle. I'm Randy, and this is 101 ESPN. We're looking back at 1998, and one of the best closers of all time is Billy Wagner, and he was pitching against Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa the season of 1998, and Billy Wagner joins us next to talk about it on 101 ESPN. Now, it's time for Long Gone Summer on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Tracy Bibb and Allstate Insurance. Text QUOTE to 65780 to see how you can save. It's Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN with Michelle Smallman. I'm Randy Carriker, and we're going to head now to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Billy Wagner was the closer for the Houston Astros in 1998, as Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were hitting all of those home runs in the National League Central. Billy was pitching for the Astros in the National League Central, and he got a chance to see a lot of that show during the course of the summer. Uh, Billy Wagner, thanks so much for taking some time with us here on 101 ESPN in St. Louis this morning. How are you doing? 
I'm great. Thanks for having me. Hey, I want to ask you something before we get started. We, we always had rumors here that you would wind up as a member of the Cardinals. Did you ever <laughs> hear those rumors? Did you ever think, hey, that at some point I might be a member of the Cardinals? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. Uh, uh, just in passing with, uh, you know, uh, some of the Larusa and, and Duncan and stuff like that, all-star games and stuff like that, they, you know, always, how would you like to be a Cardinal? I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, those were always, uh, I think, even more after I'd, I'd left uh, Houston, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, Billy, we certainly want to talk to you about Long Gone Summer, the McGuire-Sosa home run chase. And we know what it felt like here in St. Louis. We know what it felt like in Chicago. We've been, and it was a national story, but what was it like in other clubhouses? Was this something that you guys were following as intensely as, as we were and as the general baseball fans were? Oh, gosh, yes. That was, that was I mean, <clears throat> that was just the comeback for baseball. That was uh, after the strike and... Uh, it was just I had a, a dark spot on uh, with the negotiations and everything coming back. It, we still had a, a stigma going on, and then when uh, Mac and uh, Sammy kind of jumped to the the head of uh, the season with with the home runs and the, the, the excitement, it just you know uh, and, pro- and you know the year before, I mean they they, they you know everything that started to kind of jump that way when uh, Mac first came in and stuff like that. So. You know when when they when they were playing and and I, I know our team wasn't playing. One of their games was on, and you know thanks to ESPN, then you know they could split the screen and you could see both guys with with their at bats. So <clears throat> we were really in tune with it. and It was fun to watch. Billy Wagner, from your perspective as a hard throwing lefty closer, that year, which one was tougher to pitch to? Well, I, I hate that they, they were both very tough. Uh, I think the, the toughest was Matt, just because I didn't know him very well, uh, and, and you know, uh, you know, he was definitely more of an intimidating presence uh, when he was at the plate. As far as just you know, you'd seen him on TV. I hadn't, I, you know, I I grew up with uh, Matt with the A's and stuff like that, so I was really, you know, I was so, super excited just to see him, but. Uh, uh, and then, you know, really getting to see him, I guess, uh, at the, you know, up close when we played and watching him take BP, I mean, you know, there was a lot to sit there and go, Phew, he made a bat look small. So, I mean, there was, uh, you know, there was a lot to, 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 that I just was in awe of when I was facing Mac and I'd faced Sammy a couple of times prior to that. So, uh, you know, Max just was a little newer, uh, to, for me to, uh, to see. Well, Billy, as you're watching this go on, this home run race, you're seeing that basically anything that pitchers are throwing at these guys, they're making contact and it's it's gone. So from a pitching standpoint, how do you approach that? How do you, do you say, okay, I'm just going to go fastball, give them everything I've got? Or, or what's your uh, approach mentally from a pitcher standpoint when you're facing one of those guys? Well, I think it's funny. It's just, I mean, we heard, uh, you know, people talking about don't go out and watch uh, Mac take BP. Don't don't watch these guys do this thing. You know, it's intimidating. And, you know, I mean, going out and watching Mac take BP in the Astrodome and he's hitting it up in the rainbow seats, you know, something that was really uncommon. I mean, pitchers were just going, Phew, you know. But uh, from my perspective, I, there, was, there was nothing else I could do um, as a fastball pitcher. Um, they were, you know, we got in that situation. I think the first time I faced Mac, he popped up 
and it, I felt like it hit the the top of the Astrodome. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, for me, it was I was going to give them my best because I knew that they were going to be toned in on me. Uh, so, and most of the time, I mean, Matt probably knew more about me than I knew about him as far as just uh, stuff. And so, um, it, it was uh, it was it was interesting to see uh, to face that 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 experience. With, with those guys coming to the plate and stuff. Former big league closer Billy Wagner is with us on 101 ESPN. And Billy, it's interesting, looking back now especially, that was such a big deal and the, the country, heck, national newscasts were focused on McGuire and Sosa, let alone ESPN going to all of their at-bats and their games being on national TV. Yet you guys were winning 102 games. So was that a good thing for you guys that as great as your team was, you were able to fly <laughs> under the radar? Or was, was it offensive? that the show was elsewhere with teams that weren't as good as you? We, believe me, we weren't even concerned about the, uh, you know, getting the, I guess, the recognition that we should get by winning and, and, and having uh, that many wins. I think the biggest key was just, I mean, we enjoyed the experience as much as the rest of the country by going out there and being able to, to see the hype of McGuire and Sosa. And, I mean, you know, I, there's, I mean, going out and, being in Bush Stadium and, or, uh, in Wrigley and, you know, they come up to the plate and, you know, all of a sudden there's pomp and circumstance with, let's change the balls and make sure, you know, everything is documented. So, I mean, I think we all enjoyed it. I don't think we got caught going that, you know, it's just ridiculous. We're the better team. I think we, everybody understood and knew what was, what was going on. There was a lot of history right there. Through the wonder of baseball reference, we find that Mark McGuire got you once in 98. Do you remember the at-bat here in St. Louis? Oh, man, do I. It was, you know what, um, there's a couple little little side notes to that, which was tremendous. Uh, I believe it was with two outs. Uh, uh, Royce Clayton had just gotten on, and I'd had two outs, and I, uh, me and Osmus, it was like a, I think it was like a, a one-one count to Royce, and I threw him a change-up which I don't throw very many change up and he kind of blooped it over and, you know, and all of a sudden Matt comes out he's pretty good at bat. And I threw a 98 minor fastball, uh, down the way and he hits it about two rows from the top of, uh, Bush stadium. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was a no doubt for when he hit it. So, you know, you know, as a coach, you give up the home run, you're walking off the field, fans are going crazy. It just, you know, you know, so at, you know, more insult. I go out there uh, uh, to add more insult. Um, I walk into the clubhouse and Jeff Bagwell standing there going, man, that was so awesome because I wanted to forearm bashing when I went in. You know, that, you're sitting there going, thanks, teammate. I really appreciate all the all the, the great things. And so, you know, I, you know, giving up the home run to McGuire was not the, the worst thing because, I mean, he's done it before and, and many times. But the thing that uh, – the thing was unique is I, I was my football, my high school football coach was there and with his family, and we, I was getting ready to go to a barbecue after the after that game, and I'm going back to the hotel room after it, and I'm going up, and this little old lady sitting there, and she goes, "Man, I really feel so sorry for that little pitcher. Give up that home run. I, I feel so bad." And I'm sitting there with my coach, and and she's just crushing me, and I'm like, you know, that guy sucked. I don't know why they even pitched him. <laughs> And so I'm sitting there, you know, she has no idea who I am. And so now I got to go, I got to go through that. Now I'm going to my coach's barbecue uh, with his family. And, you know, you got to play the 
the ah, oh, not a big deal card, you know. Oh, you know, you know, it, hey, Big Mac. And, you know, you, I didn't even have time to go, man. I, that's awful. That was a terrible experience as far as just the emotion. But you know, I mean, I, when when you're a closer, giving up home runs, that's just part of it. But it, it was it was pretty neat to face that environment and and uh, I mean, you know. No matter what what the situation was and what you know the allegations and everything, being able to hit a ball that far and, and do the things that he could do, him and Sammy could do in that moment was was uh, you know it saved baseball. Billy, as we're listening to you retell this story, any pitcher that we've spoken to about Long Gone Summer, about the documentary, they remember that one that they gave up to McGuire or Sosa in such vivid detail. And at the time, it was such an exciting time that you can kind of rationalize it in your brain like you just did. Like, yeah, it was terrible. It was a terrible experience. But we still appreciate the moment and what it did for baseball. But then you find out about the performance enhancers. And I just wonder, looking back now, does it change the way you view that time and maybe that home run you gave up? How do you look at it now? knowing what we know here in 2020? Oh, that's very tough, just because I know Mark and, and, and guys and the allegations and the things that were laid out in front of them were, you know, um, they, they, they were, I think it bothered me more as a fan because of understanding that um, of all the work uh, that I'd put in to get to that point to face a Mark McGuire who, you know, was, you know, the, our Babe Ruth and Sammy and these guys to go out there and have that, you know, that really just puts a damper on what, you know, you know, you know, where, where do I stand? Where, where do we stand in that uh, situation? I mean, do, you know, honestly, it's like anything else. Do I, I think that McGuire would have hit a home run off of me no matter what. I mean, he, he, it wasn't like he wasn't a very good player. He was a good player before all these things these were but what it does is you know would you know just puts that that doubt in your mind of you know what was it was it artificial or or was it not i mean you you know and unfortunately it that's uh you know as a fan i hate to have to be put in that situation where you have to talk about a moment where there's doubt uh, it's always fun when you sit there and you talk about it and you know for sure that that what's going on. I, I mean, I guess the the biggest thing is how do the how do you how do you document the uh, you know the uh, the records? I mean, why why are they you know why are they kept and put an asterisk and stuff like that? I just like the real thing and just like everybody else. And I mean, I think both of these guys for what they did for baseball was tremendous. It just stinks that, you know, it has to be, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, put in there with an asterisk. Mm -hmm. Hey, Billy Wagner, before we let you go, I think I need more of my friends and your fans to get Hall of Fame ballots because everybody I know says that Billy Wagner should be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I can't figure out how these writers are have not put you in yet, but I watched your whole career, and uh, I know that you're a Hall of Famer, and I hope that next year is the year that you get in. You deserve it. No, I really appreciate it. Thanks a ton. I always enjoyed being in St. Louis, win, lose, or draw. It was always a blast. I loved the fans. I loved just... You know, they were always respectful, and uh, I enjoyed that uh, everywhere. I, you know, I love the Midwest either way, so it was, uh, it was great to be a part of that. Hey, great to hear your voice. Thanks so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks, guys, for having me. Take care.
That is Billy Wagner, and he really is. A 422 career saves and absolutely dominant during his career. He absolutely should be in the Hall of Fame. And it's amazing, Michelle, when we talk to closers and talk to Bruce Suter or Jason Isringhausen or Lee Smith, they all remember giving up the walk-offs. They don't remember all the saves, but mm-hmm. and that's because they were so good. They, they don't right. remember many. They didn't have many walk-offs, but they all remember, especially the, the bombs that beat them. Well, how could you ever forget a Mark McGuire bomb two rows from the top of Bush Stadium with the crowd going bananas? I don't think you're ever going to forget that one. What a great story. <laughs> Billy Wagner on 101 ESPN. Coming up, we've got to take it or leave it. Get your text into the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. Tioli coming your way on 101 ESPN. Take it or leave it. Give us your feedback now by texting 65780. It's take it or leave it with Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Our thanks to Billy Wagner. Mark McGuire will join us at 845. We'll talk to Big Mac about Long Gone Summer. It is Long Gone Summer week on 101 ESPN. Long Gone Summer, the story of the 1998 home run chase between McGuire and Sosa. Set to air as part of the 30 for 30 series Sunday night on ESPN. And in, in, and in anticipation and in anticipation <laughs> of the premiere, 101 ESPN <laughs> is looking back at that memorable year, including on-air interviews all week long with many different coaches and athletes involved with that. 98 season, including Big Mac coming up at 845. That's appointment listening. And Long Gone Summer Week on 101 ESPN is brought to you by our friend Tracy Bibb at Allstate Insurance. Text the word QUOTE to 65780 to see how you can save and you can also text the word FIGHT to 65780 if you'd like to participate in the fight at 830. Okay, your questions. Tioli, here's Colin. Earlier this week, an Italian woman did some next-level multitasking as she proceeded to prepare 90 stuffed olives while receiving brain surgery. Stuffing the olives allowed doctors to monitor her brain function during the procedure. After hearing this story, you will never complain about multitasking again. Take it or leave it. Yeah, I'll absolutely 100% take that. Now, I can remember having a stent put in, and I wasn't completely under. They just gave me a local. And so I'm actually watching as they're running this wire up and into my, putting a stent in my heart. I'm watching it on TV as it's happening in front of me. What? And talking to the nurse about the value of red wine to the heart. I remember it like it was yesterday. So... Uh, and the brain is the same way. They want to. That was the way it was for Dunk when he had his initial brain surgeries. They they want to keep you awake and and talking and doing things. And so yeah, I will never complain about multitasking. But I'm impressed that somebody could actually stuff olives during a surgery. A lot of follow up questions here, Randy. Were you freaking out that you were awake and watching this happen? I was so calm. It was unbelievable. And so this was. Uh, it was. December 23rd of 2010. I missed a football game. I missed one of our pregame shows. Oh, yeah. And so I'm being wheeled down the hall. So I, it, I'll, I'll try to make this short. So I, uh, I'm i in for a stress test. So I'm on a treadmill, and they get the treadmill going, 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 going. And all of a sudden, the person in charge of the test, the administrator punches a red button on my treadmill and it was like an FBI raid. There were 20 people in the room in a blink. Wow. And I felt fine. And I'm asking them, they said, you have to take an ambulance literally across the street at St. Luke's, across the street. And I said, can I just drive? I feel great. There's no, you got to go in an ambulance. <laughs> so I go across the street and I remember being wheeled down the hall and the nurse next to me says, 
You have Dr. Rinder, my fabulous cardiologist at uh, St. Luke's, and she said, you're in great hands. So, and I met him, and I felt great about it, so I was really calm, and then you don't feel any pain. It's like an out-of-body experience. It's happening to you, and you're watching it, but you can't feel it at all. Wow. I think I would be freaking out. Yeah. That's an amazing story. I thought it was interesting. That is. And the fact that this Italian woman can stuff olives while she's getting brain surgery, also amazing. I can't stuff olives or peppers when I'm not having brain surgery. Right. And again, follow-ups there. It seems a little unsanitary to have food working while your brain is open and exposed. Also, no one's going to want to eat the olives after they've been in a hospital room, in in an operating room. You don't tell people. Well, well, you would think, right, if, if if this is me, an Italian woman, stuffing these olives, getting brain surgery, I would be stuffing the olives for the doctors. Like, hey, thanks for taking care of my brain. Here's the gift. But the doctors are going to say, hey, operating room, we can't eat these things. So it just feels like the food, which was probably delicious, would also go to waste. I wonder if she, like, because olives have a tendency to be slippery. Yes. It could be like the junior mint in the Seinfeld episode. What if uh, she just, one slips out and lands in her head? Like, she's got olive brain. Like, oh, we sewed her back up. There's an olive in there. (laughs) I don't know. By the way, side note, I've never seen Seinfeld not once. Oh, man. I know. It's a very weird thing about me. It's not like I'm avoiding it. I I, just have never seen it. I have to give you five episodes in 65780, your favorite Seinfeld episode. But you have to watch the contest. You have to watch the junior men. We have to watch the uh, the Chinese restaurant. It, there are some must-see Seinfeld episodes that we have to get you going with. I just, it feels like a big task to start it and then ha- watch you know, it, in, it uh, in its entirety. Here, there's two things about it. Number one, you don't have to watch it in, in, in its entirety because they're all distinctly different. Okay. It's not a, a, an ongoing thing. And the other thing is, and Bob Ramsey made this point to me and I'd never thought of it this way. In their 10 years or whatever that the program ran, eight years, there was never one serious moment ever. Not one? Not one. Oh, so it's not like we're following along plots here? No. Okay. Uh, never a serious moment. Got one from the 314 on the Air Comfort Service text line, 65780. All of this bickering with Major League Baseball has made you 10% less of an MLB fan. I, I have to leave that just because... I have such a long history as a fan, and I know that when they come back, I'll be watching and paying attention. And it's, I, I can't, that, that's a passion that is very difficult for anybody, even the me- most messed up people, to quench. Yeah, I'm going to leave it as well. As angry as I am, and that is well documented on this show, I'm at it both sides. We got the chance to watch an early screener of Long Gone Summer last night, and I cried twice. And it made me ache for baseball. And, and I think I was crying because I was, you know, when, when I hear Jack Buck's voice calling a Cardinals baseball game, I miss it. I, I'm angry because I miss it. There's a thin line between love and hate. And right now we're feeling the hate, but you can only feel the hate because of the love. Bingo. Exactly. And let me give you a quick side note here. This isn't even really a side note. This is a major note. So Michelle is up in Bristol. And one time uh, we ran into each other at Bush Stadium. You came into town. Yeah. And we're sitting together. And you you were talking about coming back. And I'll never forget. You you said, this is one of the reasons that I want to come back. Mm -hmm. Because of the ability to go to Bush Stadium and go to games and sit at that ballpark. It's... Like I said before, it's your second home. It's yeah. home. It's your it's your sports home. Yeah, no doubt.
According to a memo sent out to Ole Miss season ticket holders earlier this week, the Rebels have every intention of playing football in a full stadium in 2020. Nothing will get in the way of packed stadiums in the SEC this fall. Take it or leave it. That's 100%. Well, not all SEC schools, so I'm going to leave it, but I'm going to say for 12 of the 14, I'm going to take it. Yeah. (laughs) You don't need a pandemic to get in the way of filling up Mizzou. (laughs) Randy. Just saying. (laughs) Accurate. But still surprising coming from you. Usually that's something I would say. But... This is as sure of a take it as I'm ever going to take in my entire life. You know that come pandemic, health, hell or high water, those SEC stadiums are going to be packed, roll tide roll, when it uh, when we get to football season, yeah. without a doubt. Thank you, Colin. Thank you. That is Colin Surrey, and that is Take It or Leave It on 101 ESPN. Coming up, the latest on the unfortunate name for the baseball book club here on 101 ESPN. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Plus, we'll tell you who's winning next with Carriker and Smallman. That was the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.